fuck the intro. Let's let's let Kappa do it. You're listening to the Came from the Silver Screen. I'm Josh, and with me as always is Damien. How are we doing, Damien? I'm going fantastic, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. That's excellent. So it's been big times. Big, big times, times indeed. Yes. So uh, apologies to audience for a slightly later episode than usual this week. I have been moving house. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm exhausted, but we're gonna we're gonna do this anyway because this is a film that I absolutely adore and mm. have done ever since it first came out. A lot of people didn't quite like it, but I have always held fast to the belief that uh, it's one of the great unsung, you know, movies of you know the 21st century, and it is of course Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, written by the very polarizing, I guess is what you'd say, and also interesting playwright and, uh, you know, novelist and, you know, cinema writer, Alex Garland. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's got, you know, Cillian Murphy, Chris Evans, Rose Byrne. Well, those are the white characters anyway. Mm. Well, it's also got Michelle Yeoh. Mm-hmm. You know, Cliff, uh, Curtis. Cliff Curtis, Troy Garrity as, uh, you know, uh, the other, you know, token white guy in there. But then it's also got, you know, Hiroyuki Sonata, who uh, most uh, viewers and listeners would uh, probably recognize as being uh, uh, the second in command in uh, Last Samurai. Mm. Being an absolute being an absolute badass in that. And then, um, you know, Benedict Wong as well, mm-hmm. who um, has gone on and is um, – you know, uh, I think season two is coming out soon, but is currently playing uh, Kubla Khan on uh, Netflix's uh, Marco Polo series. Aha! Uh-huh. Did not know that. Yeah, well, he, I, d- well, I he, do he, quite like him. Yeah, no, he was great. Yes. I don't know if you ever saw The Martian. I did. Yeah, yes. well, remember he was the guy was like the air. Yeah, he was the aerospace guy that mm. like kept on having to. They just said, "Oh, can you do this impossible thing?" And some of the most pleasurable moments of that movie were just watching. Benedict, like, just turn and sigh yeah. with this, like, you know, <laughs> resignation of, like, look, I am smart enough to sort this out, but, oh, man, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really, I really enjoyed him in that movie, actually. And that was a movie mm. with a lot, with a fucking enormous cast. But, it was. But, it was a but, very big ensemble mm, really knows how to draw them in but even but even yeah. by even by that by his standards that was a, a big cast but yeah benedict stood out to me so anyway this you know uh i guess once again you know i guess we're trying to we're trying to keep ourselves on our toes we're not trying to settle into a pattern per se i think like maybe this is like a conscious you know reaction to the fact that like we started our tenure doing a lot of like comic book movies, Mm. a lot of big sort of blockbuster epics. And maybe we're just sort of trying to make sure that we don't like, you know, fall into a certain jam or anything, but um, yeah. So once again, this week we're going to, we're going to do something completely different to uh, the uh, big short from last week. Absolutely. This is a, you know, that was a, well, I guess it was a finance docudrama, mm. I guess. And then this is a sci-fi thriller 
horror film. Horror film almost, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it is a genre film. Mm. At the at the most base level, it is a genre film, but the way in which it's done or the way in which it acknowledges those trappings is so subtle that yes. you you almost forget like the and also like just the uh the technical expertise of how it's executed as well mm. just it, it makes you forget sort of how kind of basic really the story actually is it is well it is it is set up as you know so it's a you know earth the the sun's dying and this is a mission to reignite it mm. they gotta go do it so All they're right, sitting they're in a pretty... on a spaceship that's strapped to the back of a a fucking enormous bomb what, what do they say in the movie you know equal like to the size s- of uh you know the, the weight of manhattan island yeah yeah so um to basically ex- blow up the sun from inside and kick start it and by all accounts brian cox you know the the doctor mm. brian cox the physicist you know advised on this movie so by all accounts on some level it's scientifically accurate i i can't you know comment and on that you know that's neither here nor there but i suppose that the, i mean you know I guess that's the premise of like any good sci-fi film is that like as long as it sounds plausible, that's good enough. Well, a lot of the stuff at the start sound pretty plausible. Mm. As you kind of get moving, it kind of gets a little... Well, when it starts veering from sci-fi thriller into a uh, horror movie, then it starts getting a little more uh, unnatural. Yeah. Which is kind of it, it, which is a lot of charm to that, though. Yeah, the, you don't really, and by that point, you don't really care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, it is an, it is a curious thing, like it, that. Um, this movie is almost several genres, or you yeah. know, like you know, smashed within the one movie, and so because you're never quite certain of like what, you know style the movie is is trying to be you're constantly on your toes Mm. yeah and it's actually since you like mentioned like the martian all that it like martian and sunshine do hit um a few of the same beats Mm. i suppose like one of the one of the major ones i'd I'd suggest it hits is uh this this notion of science as supreme, mm. and you see it. You see, you see a lot of movies, um, you know, that like go for you know the big sci-fi epics and everything like that, and it's you know predicated on this notion of advanced technology and everything like that. But then at the end of the day, it always comes back to some sort of like uh, you know, like love saves us. And I mean, like, and that, that isn't, that, that, that isn't to denigrate uh, Interstellar because I, I thought Interstellar was a masterful film, but mm. it, it went for that classic of, um, you know, a, a, you know, a human moment contextualized by sci-fi, whereas, you know, Sunshine and Martian were both the other way around. 
Well, yeah, it's um, the, you know, where uh, Interstellar, uh, Matthew McConaughey's character was very much, um, though he was, you know, smart enough to be a astronaut, uh, he was still very much a um, an everyman. And it's like, yeah, he just, this could be anyone. This doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, one of the smartest people in the world that we've sent off mm. into outer space which is what Martian was and is what certainly what uh, Sunshine is. Yeah. Uh, you know, every single person on, the, on that crew is, you know, as smart as they can be. The you know. top of their field, you know. Mm. And that was that kind of, you know, interesting dynamic that, yeah, yeah, now that you mention it, I absolutely notice between um, the Martian and Sunshine. This very much like, you know, the, like, you know, science is the answer. We will, we will talk about these issues rationally, you know. There's going to be no praying or, you know, wishing it was so here. Well, yeah, we, the, we, we will, and you, and you see it in Sunshine, you know, any sort of crisis that comes up, it's, you know, we, we will not vote. Uh, yes, yes. It wasn't like we're, we're going to put this to the, uh, the most knowledgeable person in the room about this, about this one subject. So I guess like the first thing is finding that distress signal because this is the second uh, trip to reignite the sun. Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, the Icarus, uh, the Icarus one was uh, the first mission that attempted to go. They lose contact. Nothing happens, and so then around uh, Mercury. Yeah. They, and so then uh, I, 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 I fail to recall how many years later. I think it was like seven years later. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. They, they uh, launch another mission, the Icarus 2, to uh, go and do the same thing. And then the movie sort of travels on this very sort of uh, kind of um, day-in-the-life um, routine-based uh, sort of uh, – uh, path which reminded me a lot of Alien in the sense that it built dread by having nothing go wrong. Yeah. Until, until something went wrong. Well, the first time that it starts going wrong is not really a, a big thing that's going wrong. It's just because of a, a solar flare or a solar cloud, um, they're not going to be able to do any sort of uh, communication. Mm back and forth and then uh you know silly murphy's character kappa um he takes a little too long and so that you know causes uh him and chris evans character mace to butt heads so you're all so you're seeing you know a bit of um i guess cabin fever yeah well it's so it's, it's, it's yeah it's very subtly done so like at the same time what you're doing is you're a you know developing you know characters and uh, initiating conflicts that will come to a head later but you're also very slowly starting to tighten the noose on these characters at the same time mm. you're very yeah. after that you're very no. gradually sort of like you know uh, it's a, it's a signal to the audience that they are alone mm. which is which is another thing that I've noticed about this movie that uh most, most, if not all, other sort of movies of this ilk do. This movie never once, except at the very, very last frame, 
or shot rather, they never cut back to earth. Yeah. And that, <laughs> so you never, you never, you as an audience and the characters never get relief. Mm. You never get to, uh, sort of, uh, experience the relief of a broader reality. Yeah, there's no – the stakes are only what the characters are putting in. Yeah, and so the narr- the narrative is constricted for the audience in the same way that the characters are constricted by their circumstances. Yeah. And it's a, it's a it's a it's just a very very smart move because it would have been super easy to have like, you know, some sort of, you know, mission control character, you know, trying to you know, help them out and like give advice and everything like that. And it would have been such a different movie if they'd done that, but no, they keep the focus on the crew. Yeah. And it's, you know, that would have just been Armageddon or, you know, deep impact or stuff like that to have both things going on on earth and on the ship as well. Basically, actually you just end up with Martian. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. If you wanted, uh, you know, if you wanted um, a smart, you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah, these, Marsh, this, the, the the Martian is the smart Armageddon. Mm, it's it's it, it is it is the exact center between Sunshine and Armageddon. Yeah. So and yeah, that's a, a catching lightning in a bottle because <laughs> if you tried to do it with Sunshine, this would not be the same film that it is. No, because it it does, and it's really being able, you know credits to you know the casting director and all of that and, and Danny Boyle for bringing out really great um, performances from pretty much every character mm. and at a time when like uh, a good a good many of these characters sorry characters I should say like actors were sort of in their professional infancy yeah, well, yeah, Cillian Murphy. I mean, Cillian Murphy, uh, Murphy had done, you know, 28 Days Later. Yeah, but even then that was still very much a, a small film. Mm, exactly. It was, it was a, a cult film, really, that kind of started to pick up a few years after it came out. Yeah. I mean, Michelle Yeoh was probably like one of the veterans, you know, having done, mm. you know, so many movies in uh, – you know, in China and Hong Kong and things like that, she'd already had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon under her belt. So she was kind of like the uh, elder statesman of the cast. I read somewhere that uh, Danny Boyle gave her the pick of any character that she wanted. Uh, that 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 he said, you can pick any character that you want, I will change the gender. I will change dialogue to suit you have free reign. And she chose Corazon. And mm. it seems so very appropriate that yeah, the, at, the, at the end of the day that she would choose Corazon because I don't know how much, like have you read sort of much about like the, the like uh, production on this film in terms of like the character development? No, because no, they, because please. they, because they wrote massive, uh, character backgrounds that and that shows in for their performances. for all for all of the uh, characters in this movie, they wrote enormous, um, you know, sort of uh, life stories for the characters that you never see on screen. 
except that you do. Yeah, well, it all informs their performances. Yeah. I mean, Boyle made them all live together. Yeah. You know, to foster this sense of a crew. He made them, you know, uh, go into a submarine. Ah, to create that isolation. Well, it's the isolation. It's the – and the claustrophobia as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, like basically – you know, a submarine is about, is about as close as, you know, you can get to being on a spaceship. Mm. I mean, the the pressure works in the opposite direction, but it's still the same, you know, same, same principle. And uh, it's, it's quite, you know, just amazing knowing that, like, you know, like Boyle and Garland worked on the script for over a year. It went through almost like 35 different uh drafts before they finally sort of came down to it the cast is mostly white at the start and then when they once they started consulting with nasa nasa was like dudes make that shit international yeah and it's and it works like it just it just it just makes it it, it's not uh, i mean like you know no offense to like you know the whole uh issue of you know racial whitewashing in like Hollywood and everything like that. I'm not suggesting that like, you know, at the same time that like just casting, you know, people of alternate, you know, nations and colors and creeds into a film, you know, just for the sake of it, it works. But like, obviously in this, it does work because space travel and, you know, uh, space exploration has always been an international endeavor. Yeah. Well, as you were saying with, you know, uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, you know, when she got the pick of a character, um, you look at pretty much any characters you could choose from and they're very um, agnostic in terms of of race and and gender Mm. Um, because there's such, you know, it's the, you know, it's the physicist, it's the astronaut, it's the, you know, comms, you know, the, you know, the fearless leader, the psychologist, you know, they're all just basic characters characters yeah um, that are then uh, brought to life by the actors playing them absolutely so and it's and, and it's it, it's absolutely beautiful to watch it really actually is there's a mm. there's a rawness that perme it- that permeates throughout this entire film that somehow like you know subjugates or overrides or whatever phrase you want to think of it it like the the quality of the acting in this film, and it obviously has to do with like the amount of like pre prep that went into these like stories that you, we will never hear, you know, as you know, viewers of the film. You know, most of it never ever comes up, but you know, it's all valid. And it contributes, and so it contextualizes certain scenes, and so when you see you know, scenes like, uh, you know, Corazon after the fire in the oxygen garden and she shattered. Mm. And you read about how her backstory was she was the only person that never used the earth room Ah. because she had earth in her garden. Yeah. She put herself there. Yeah. And so that destroys her. 
you see how Mace was born of a military family. He's a very, you know, he's the most militant of them all. And has a pragmatism that makes yeah. that makes so much sense. But he is the mission bound. But it, but it, but is but is but obviously, uh, as with you know a lot of you know stuff pertaining to military action, can be misconstrued as aggression when it's actually just common sense. Mm. Because and I mean, is, because the right way is not the easy way. No, yeah, and it does you know throughout this throughout that the film, uh, Mace's character is the uh, the voice of reason that. Um, and in any other film would be listened to, mm. but uh, throughout a lot of it, uh, it's not. Yeah, an in- an interesting fact that I read was um, in terms of characterization, Harvey's character was the yeah. was the only o- yeah was the only one who missed Earth. Yeah, that and which plays into exactly, um, and but the, but the, and the beauty of that is you. It's never brought up in the movie once, no. but then when you see how his car- how like he reacts to the prospect of never getting home and of yeah, of death, like that makes so much. It sense. makes so much sense. I just can't get over like just the level of like preparation that yeah, went that's... that went into a movie that you know could have been so basic, so beholden to the genre that it exists in and instead yeah. manages to ascend into this actually really interesting and glorious analysis of, you know, the notion of, you know, human consciousness. You know, how does man regard himself or, you know, herself in the face of the endless oblivion of space, how does that make you acknowledge or react to or deal with the the concept of God, no matter what denomination you yeah, uh, you you adhere to? Higher being, yeah, yeah. It plays around, you know. And what are you willing to? What are you? You know how much have you got? Have you put into this? You know because they're alone in space. Uh, they're also doing the impossible, and they have to put a lot of faith in the fact that this might not work. This is still very theoretical. You know, trying to reignite the sun. They also may not come back from this. You know, how are they willing to sacrifice themselves in order to get this mission done? And a lot of people, you know, a lot of the crew. To struggle with that issue, you know, as soon as that uh, distress beacon pops up, because mm. they think, well, maybe there's another, maybe there's, uh, you know, the crew is still alive somehow of the uh, of Icarus One. Um, and it's that thing, and like you know, the Icarus One is kind of like that that pull. Mm. It's that it's that human it's that human pull. Because yeah. Ooh, can it's, we it's, it's it's the science it's yeah eight. it's the scientific you know motivation versus the human desire to you know save you know their mates yeah be 
make the moral choice. Yeah, and it's like, you know, yeah, but it's like, you know, the moral choice, you know, it's that utilitarian sort of thing. Like, you know, the good of the many outweighs the the good of the one. It's like maybe what you say, you, you have a chance to save seven people, but how does that compare to the uh, prospect of, you know, saving billions? Yeah, which you- is something that, yeah, really. Like Mace's character does. Um, well, yeah. That actually. That so that first. So that when they have to make that decision and they're they're debating about it, um, there is no wrong answer in that. There's no right answer until further down the line. Mm. Because I mean, like, like when when uh, when when Kappa says like you know everything about this bomb is theoretical. There's every chance that it couldn't work the logic to chase this uh, lost first ship is absolutely sound because two last hopes are better than one. Yeah. And the, so, the, the logic on that is sound. Yeah. And that's, and that is devoid of having, you know, that moral choice of saving the other crew. Mm. That is just, yep. We're able to detonate a bomb twice. Unfortunately, that doesn't, exactly work out for them yeah that's i was i would suggest that's putting it mildly <laughs> <laughs> i'm actually i gotta say i've got this movie going on in the uh, background while we're talking and we have literally just reached the moment where they have breached icarus one uh, and i've got to i've got to give a shout out to the um the fact that the uh, opening of um the movie um, about like I don't know two or three minutes in, has that flash of Icarus 2's crew, yes. the photo of Icarus 2's crew, and then it cuts to the movie in action, and then this first scene when they first breach Icarus One, full of dust, you know, dead inside, dark as hell, and they're all using the flashlights. Every single time the flashlight, or uh, sorry, a flashlight, pass, passes directly into the camera, you get this um, subliminal single frame shot yeah. of one of blink the blink if you miss one, it. Yeah, blink if you miss it. You know, fragment of one of the crew members from the same styled photo of Icarus One, and it's the mm. first hint that this isn't quite the sort of benevolent spacefaring exploration that, you know, you might have been led to believe that it was. Yeah. And it's, um, and even before then, so I guess jumping back to what you were saying. Because I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's it's sinister. It's, it's incredibly sinister. It's, yeah, it is extremely sinister and it makes you think the worst of what of what's going to happen, mm. and it's like, and it's started to be, you know, addressed because this, you know, this is what starts opening up to the, you know, the uh, the monster horror uh, part of the film. Yeah, and it's but it's brought up very early on by uh, you know Cliff Curtis's character Searle. Yeah, um, in his uh, fascination with the sun, mm. and uh, and. You know, it spends a lot of time in um, when he's in the uh, observation room to 
you know, the film takes its time with that going, you know, let's drop it down, you know, let's drop the shields down a little bit more or let's open it up to, uh, you know, he wants to put it to 4%, but he would be blinded if he was able to do that. So he's, but he's able to do it to 3.2%. Well, I mean, there, I feel like seconds. there's a there's a reason the movie opened with that scene. Yeah, and it you know, and it kind of you know it starts out as just like oh this is a you know this is a fascinating sort of you know look at you know basically a man looking at you know the dying flame of human existence, mm. but also at the same time at uh, an entity so much more powerful mm. than than he is, which is kind of the dichotomy that the movie starts to try and tackle. Yeah, and that, to the point of he is giving himself over to that entity. Yeah. Because you see as, as it progresses throughout the film, he is, you know, it's a, very much a cosmetic change in him that he's starting to get burns over his over his face you know over his skin he's starting to actually you know he's spending more and more time looking at the sun with uh, you know less and less uh, resistance from the ship yeah and also less and less sort of uh, human mm. connection and he's giving into it and he's wanting to you know, um, and he's starting to uh, bring on others to this. You know, the the ship's captain, Canada. Uh, Canada, yeah, he's also starting to get that. Um, I guess like solar addiction. Well, it's that sort of like you know, um, I, I don't know, like how how you would like describe it, but. A, a kind of a comparative reality where these are scientists who for the most part have rejected the existence of God, at least in the sort of like Anglo-Saxon, you know, uh, Christian, you know, or, you know, any kind of, you know, human made monotheistic sense. They've rejected religion. They are scientists. They are bound to fact and knowledge as their arbiters of existence. And yet suddenly out in the ether, they're faced with this. I mean, it, it, I guess you could, I, I feel like you could say being, it, you well, could, you, you could class the sun as a being because it, it is. is it, because it, I was going to say it is almost its own character in this movie this implacable, endlessly powerful, utterly alluring. That's the thing. It's such an alluring character. It's addictive and it draws these people in. You know, some people, it draws them in different than others. But eventually, just by the sheer enormity of its power and its size and its importance it invites its own sense of worship mm. and yeah, so it's... and so at the end it kind of the it it the reality of the characters it folds back in on itself yeah and all of a sudden these people that had abandoned religion start 
talking about very religious things. Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, when uh, Canada is repairing the, um, the shield, the solar shield, and he's, you know, he's basically, you know, sacrificed himself because he's not going to get get in before the uh, you know, the solar solar flare hits the hits the ship, mm. and um, everyone's like, you know, trying to urge him to get back inside and, and to be well, but Searle is just, you know, tell me what you see, tell me what you see, and he is he is freaking out because this is he's uh, you know. Canada's getting that chance to be close to their god. Yeah, basically, it's like and it, he it's wants like to know. Yeah, it's like some kind of like follower asking one of the twelve disciples, "What was it like to talk to Jesus?" Mm. And then, and then, so they're they're characters who are who are giving into uh, giving into this newfound faith. And then you've got what will happen to them. So you see, like the um, you see Searle's, you know, skin starting to break down and all of that. And then when you go onto the Icarus One, you know, you see the flashes of them. You see all of the crew um, sitting in the observation room, um, and they're charred. Yeah, or at least most of them are charred. Um, because they've all gazed upon God in its entirety, or at the, at the same time, either or been forced, or that as well to gaze yeah. upon God, which at the same time is a very, very proper religious parallel that not all worshippers of God do so by choice. Yeah, yeah, they're forced to by. Our monster, mm. who is basically what Searle would become if left long enough, played by uh, Mark Strong's character, mm. um, who is a who starts who starts an, out an who starts out as a very you know hopeful he starts out as they do. Yeah, absolutely. It is what they as you know as, as a scientist as a as an astronaut. As you know, someone you know very keen on the mission, but also just ever so quietly fascinated about the ruin and destruction that this mission is bringing upon them. And he starts to question whether he should be doing the whether this reigniting of the sun is the right thing. Is this God's will, mm. or their God, the, the the God that they're being intoxicated by? I mean, that's the thing because I mean, you know, it's that whole kind of you know uh, very curious thing that like you know when uh, you know Christianity first started out, one of their major you know motivations was to uh, tone down. Um, any mentions of like the sun as a form of worship. Mm. It was because if like, you, because like if, if any student of history understands that like, you know, most, um, most, most Christian holidays are actually just like pirated pagan holidays. Yeah. And they've taken a lot from, you know, ancient 
you know, paganism, Egyptian, you know, various religions that did hold the sun in high regard. Mm. And it's this like glorious sense of like circuitousness that suddenly mm. at the end of it all, at the at the complete absence of faith in the vacuum of space, humans find their way back to worshiping the sun again. Mm. It is the the holy sun. Mm. It is that. And it's that kind of like, you know, it's what I suppose, you know, adherents of all religions sort of like, you know, uh, claim as their, uh, you know, what, what the allure is for them towards the religion. This vast, unknowable being of immense power that, you know, presides over us all, gives us life, but can take it away just as easily. And, but for these guys, it's not a story anymore. Because for them, the deity as manifested by the sun. That's an absolute fact. And they're getting closer it and closer do, to yeah. the realisation that this is the one true being. Yeah. And, you know, a scientific man loses uh, his intelligence. Um, he starts to – well, not his intelligence, but he starts, you know, his his, his, his objectivity starts yeah. to become skewed. And he starts – doing things based on the will of this of this god that he's that he's viewing ever closer that he's you know the further you get the closer you get to um to your god how much do you lose of your own humanity yeah and it's that kind of thing like you know uh, any sort of like sort of atheist i guess would criticize a, a devout you know, devotee of any religion, how could you possibly claim to know the will of the the being that you are worshipping? And so it's it's that it's that very strange, like, you know moment where these people that like, you know, don't you know, are, you know, or at least consider themselves to be smart enough to uh not be kind of uh, conned by by that nevertheless find themselves you know at least in the you know the characters of you know mark strong's character and uh, cliff curtis character searle they start to presume to know what you know this this being wants of them yeah which is very strange because you know it you know mark strong's character uh pinbacker um you know you would have you would think that a god would not want to die and yet uh it seems to be uh his his will that he's that mark strong believes uh that we shouldn't be reigniting the sun yeah this is it is not it is not man's place to question god to question god if god has decided to die we must allow him to yeah we and, and, we mu- and we must go with him yeah and we should not intervene in that it's which is 
really like well it's just fascinating I I, I I defy anyone to name another what is essentially a B grade movie that actually raises you know existential questions like this and does it in a very like we have we have gone into it a large amount far more than the film actually does no but it provo- the, but it provokes those kinds of questions yeah through the subtleties of of cliff Curtis's character to then the the monster of the film itself you know it starts informing these sort of uh themes though they're not and then at the very end Cillian Murphy does have this um it seems like almost an epiphany when he's uh, about to det well he when he's detonated the solar bomb when he's within the sun itself yeah um you know it's the the bomb setting itself off and it's creating a barrier between him and the sun itself or the power of the sun and he's having this epiphany and then he he lets it take him like he lets the sun take him over yeah there's that there's that joyousness mm, which is you know at the start of the film mm. he's having that nightmare of falling into the sun which you know we can we can keep writing this analogy of him being fearful of like he's trying to stop a death of a of a god Mm. that's his that's his job that's why he's he's there because he's he's setting off this bomb that will reignite it that will that will keep prometheus's flame burning for humanity so that they can still be alive so you know he's got that fear in his nightmares of of falling into the sun yeah uh, it's just i mean i mean we have i mean i don't think we've spoken about it yet but the fact that like, the, the missions are both called the icarus missions yeah little on the nose just a tiny bit yeah, it's you almost know, like they this is a, you know, thought the, they would fail. Yeah, or, or you know, just like, or that they they thought they would succeed. True. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, it, I mean, <laughs> it could that, go both ways. I mean, that's the thing; it could go both ways. I mean, like it, it was either like you know, a mission that was named as such just for the sheer long shot hopelessness of it all, or mm. because they were so certain that they could rise above, you know, like like the Icarus, you know, of the, the Grecian myths, that he could actually touch the sun, touch, the sun, touch God, mm. and live to tell the tale. You know? It's... It's an absolutely fascinating movie, and I don't. I really. I don't think we've actually. We've. We've spoken. I don't think we've spoken enough about just the the production design on this movie is incredible. It is a fantastic. Like it is a fantastic looking film. Yeah, and for for a movie that is, um, well, well, next year will be ten years old, and didn't didn't have a big budget. You know, it still looks stunning. 
it looks as good as, you know, actually, I, you know, looking on like Interstellar and all of that, it does look. That's the thing. It looks the same. It looks, well, I mean, if not more realistic, it certainly is on a par. On par with it, yeah. And I don't know what budget they made this movie for, but I know for a fact that because, like, it was, uh, they tried to sell this movie to Fox Mm. and Fox said no. And they palmed it off to Fox Searchlight, which is like their cheap indie movie branch. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an it wasn't an expensive movie for the genre that they were tackling. Yeah, well it was twenty six twenty six million pounds, that was the budget. So let's say ballpark maybe 50, 50 million American or something like that. Million, yeah. You know? And when it did not make that. <laughs> yeah. It did not even vaguely make that. And the thing was I just I, I, I think people just did not I don't think people got it. It was a well it's a very like it is like an Armageddon mm. film, but it's not Armageddon. It is not a a feel good film. It is I think a few years later, this film, you know, five years later, this film would have done really well. Yeah. And really, like, two years bef- you know, two years later, Moon comes out, which I is... I think because, like, what was this? 2000, like 2007. It. So, I mean, like... 2007, yeah. They'd, um, because we'd, we'd had a couple of sort of, like, you know, space disaster movies in the same ilk. Like, uh, we'd had Red Planet... Mm-hmm. With, we talked um, about with, Event with, Horizon with uh, Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. Event Horizon was a little bit, you know, before that. But we'd before also that, we'd, we'd also it... we'd also had the uh, remake of Solaris. Yes, with uh, George Clooney that George Clooney. Uh, Steven Soderbergh directed, and that didn't mm-hmm. do well either. So no, I think they they you know I think Fox were very sort of um, nervous about committing too much, you know, budget. And then you look at something like Interstellar. And, I mean, granted, the reason that Interstellar, you know, was as epic as it was, was because, you know, it was directed by Chris Blank Check Nolan, Mm. who I would suggest is the only man on the planet that can introduce an original IP and quite literally spend as much money as he wants to make it. Oh yeah. Well, no, was- like, because I mean, I, 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 I quite honestly cannot think of anyone else who could have gotten away with something like interstellar, like on the scale that like, you know, it was because oh, I, because yeah, ambitious. Yeah. Film. Because I remember, you know, Steven Spielberg saying that, you know, Lincoln, was almost a director home HBO movie. That would have been interesting because no one wanted to fund it. You know, not like you know, unless it, unless it's it, unless it's an established intellectual property, or a oh. se- or a sequel or a remake. Studios are now fucking terrified. Oh yeah, it's got to have you know it's got to have that um, 
you know, Marvel Seal or Star Wars or yeah, yeah like some kind, some kind of like to make money. Yeah, some kind of like market recognition. Yeah, and this this film, you know, Sunshine does it checks none of those boxes exactly. And like so much of the criticism I remember from the like reviews that came out at the time of its release focused on the fact that like, you know, it was this sort of contemplative, almost Logan's run style sci-fi movie about, you know, man's, you know, uh, attempt to deal with the implacability and the vastness of space and everything like that. And then it does this like, you know, in the third act, massive right-hand turn into, you know, a proper horror film. Mm. And, you know, people couldn't seem to get their heads around it. And, like, I suppose, you know, what, you know my, my first question, that would be, A, why does a movie need to be just one genre? Yeah, and it then, doesn't yeah, need to be. And then, uh, yeah, and then B, wasn't it actually, if you really thought about it, the complete logical progression? Yeah, absolutely. Of, 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 with- of, of what the movie happened, that eventually in the uh, absence of knowledge, the continue, like, you know, just the, the building and the building and the building of, you know, uncertainty in of, of these characters in the face of this spiritual unknownness, wouldn't you revert? Mm. Wouldn't the reptilian side of your brain take over? The fight or yeah. flight? And then they would, yeah, would there be, yeah. And it's, you know, man will survive if they can. And this one being did. Pinbacker survived. Yeah. He survives and then he comes... He finishes his task. He finishes his duty. Mm. He does his mission while, you know, the the crew of the Icarus 2 tries to complete theirs. And, you know, some of them, you know, end up dying trying to. Well, most of them. <laughs> well, yeah. And some of them, Stan- well, some of Stan- them die standard from the Hollywood, Standard Hollywood fare, you know. Yeah. At least in that sense that, you know, well, and then, but they also take some, you know, you know, Trey's, so Benedict Wong's character, Trey, um, you know, he becomes suicidal due to um, basically he, he believing that he is, he's doomed the world because he's not got his calculations correct. Mm. So they have to sedate him on all of that. And then um, instead of what could have been a cop out of the you know the the monster of the film killing him, um, they all make the decision that you know there are four people that could survive on this ship with no oxygen after the um, the Earth room is I mean sorry not the Earth room but the um, the plant room has been destroyed. They've got enough oxygen to get them. They can get to the sun with the amount of oxygen uh, if they only have four people and Trey makes five. Mm. So they go off and they decide, yep, um, well, they, you know, Chris Evans' character is like, all right, I'll do this. 
let's get this done. And um, and they actually do show that Trey has uh, has has committed suicide. Has mm. and um, it's a which, it's it's a it's that thing like you know of uh, violating audience expectation. Absolutely. By, yeah. by by building to this moment of you know dramatic you know climax of like you know oh he's gonna or something like that Trey will wake up and there'll be this fucking fight and they'll one of them will die or something like that and in the end no no but he just killed himself and you know it is showing that in his last moments he did the right thing. Mm. Which is that's that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, but it, it but it's that it's that reclamation of mm. of humanity. Yeah, and, yeah, it but is of, but of not just hard but, but of not just humanity, but of the scientific, socially responsible humanity that this mission was all about at the start of the movie. Mm. So in many ways, like you know. Benedict's character is actually one of the most purest. Yeah, well, alongside uh, Chris Evans, which, you know, we, like, he is the uh, the pretty boy of it. Mm. He, he should be the hero of the film. Yeah, and he's not. He should be the hero or he should be in the, the antagonist. But it's but like it's the, it's the main it, antagonist, but he's neither. But, but it's the correct kind of movie that understands that, like, you know, the the you know the hero of this movie is a fucking physicist mm. that couldn't win win a fist fight if his life depended on it. Yeah, oh, he's and he's he gets forced into these situations. Mm. You know, everyone's saying, you know, nope, this is no. Nope. Let Kappa decide. You know, oh, okay, I wasn't prepared to. Um, oh, Kappa's going into the into the spacesuit. Kappa this, Kappa that. Like he's being, he's being pushed into these these things, and then he has to then take it upon himself to get the hell out of it all. Mm-hmm. The the Martian sort of um, fuck yeah science bit was mm-hmm. when, uh, when he's locked into the airlock and he's got to get himself out. Yeah, and that's his big hero moment. Basically, he's bleeding out and he's got to get himself out in yeah. the. Uh, in the fifth element spacesuit. Yeah, exactly. I love those spacesuits. You know, I do I, too. I, you know, I read somewhere that like, you know, NASA asked, Oh, couldn't you like make them more like you know, regular spacesuits? Yeah, could you make them like they they are not sexy spacesuits. No, they they're these big. almost like, you know, psychedelic, you know fluorocrystalline gold like type stuff. Do you know that I um I read somewhere that their inspiration for the shape of the helmet was actually uh, the hood from Kenny in South Park. Oh, get out. I'm serious. <laughs> That's brilliant. That like that that was their inspiration <laughs> for the shape of the hood. And it makes <laughs> and, and it makes so much sense now. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's so it's like, and those suits are isolating as well. Mm, exactly. So that adds to adds to it uh, adds to it all. Yeah, it's isolation within isolation. You know, if you fall over, you're 
you know, you're kind of fucked up. Yeah. And you see that, like, you know, in, in yeah. like when, at the, like the final, you know, moment when Cillian's, you know, fired the manual boosters and he's like trying to make his way to jump across to the bomb and everything like that. And the, the suit is, is almost limiting. Mm. And, um, I just, yeah, I can't, I, I honestly can't get over just like how well constructed this film was in terms of not, not only the, 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 the contextualization of, you know, where these characters were, but just like how the characters deal with these things, because you sense this, you know, vague relationship between, um, uh, Cillian Murphy's character and Rose Byrne's character. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's this unrequited throughout throughout the film. So, you, so you sense this, like you know, real kind of like you know, like I don't know, either like past romance or like either or maybe like an unrequited future romance between Kappa and Cassie. And mm. I read an interview with uh, Danny Boyle where he said initially there was going to be like a, a sex scene between them in the film. Well, I'm glad they didn't. But eventually he took it out because he, because he said the prospect of filming that just sounded ridiculous. Yeah. It does. I couldn't find, and I, I, couldn't and I was find like a place to put that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I couldn't think of a single place in this film where some sort of traditionally romantic like scenario would go on. And that's what I love that it's it's such a gender neutral movie. Mm. There's never a moment where gender is played for either power or submission. I mean, really, the only time I could think of is Michelle Yeoh's character being the maternal figure to her plants. Yeah, but even, she's being the Mother Earth. But even but even that's more just what she's put into the character and also just because she's a botanist and man or woman i feel like the reaction would be the same yeah so in many ways like you know you know there's 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 so much talk going on at the moment about you know the the need to give women a greater role in in cinema, especially, you know, in like, you know, forms that were traditionally male oriented and things like that. But you, you see sunshine and you see women in positions of power, authority, you know, they have equal standing with the men. They are just as smart as the men. They are in many ways stronger than the men. Cassie puts up uh, a much fucking stronger fight against mm-hmm. Pinbacker than, uh, you know, Kappa does. Oh yeah. But again, at the same time, it's not played as some kind of like gender political moment. It's just, these are the facts. Yeah. And this is, this is a, this is a film that does show that you can write, you can make films where anyone could fit into any sort of role. Yeah. It's, it's that exact thing. The reason like, like any of these characters in this movie could be male or female. 
male, female could have been like yeah, and, the, and, 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 say and that yeah, and that's they the, still would be different characters yeah, but, but because they were written yeah, like that this they'd makes be different. They'd be unique. different because of the character, not because of the gender. Yeah, and that's a, and, and, yeah, and that's and that's the thing, you know, like, and you know, ever so quietly, I feel like that's the solution to yeah, you know, to to to, to, to 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 this sort of like you know notion of like you know, oh, there's not enough parts being written for women. No, just write good parts that could be played by either men or women. Yeah, well, yeah. If you're not going to, if you're not going to specifically write films with an intended person in mind, you know, and you've got you that are aside from the white male character, Mm. write agnostic characters. You know, let an actor let let the strength of an actor come through in their performance. Have more trust in your in your actors. To do right, because I swear to Christ, if like you know, nine out of ten parts of making a good movie is just good casting. Hmm. And so, if you like, just cast someone good in it, and then trust them to deliver the goods, they will. I swear to Christ, they will. Yeah, a director shouldn't, uh, you know, handhold an actor. No. They set up the, you know, they set up the, you know, all the, all the stuff uh, before filming, you know, putting them in, you know, getting them the right backstories, putting them in a submarine and all of that, getting them to be the best characters that they can and allow them to do the rest. And that's... Because they will. Yeah. And that's, and that's what Danny Boyle did in this movie. He set them up and he let them go. But historically speaking, that's what he's done is in every single film he's done. And, like, I know we we wanted to talk about this, but this is a man that is not pinned down by genre. No. This, you you couldn't, you know, I mean, he's he's done before. Yeah, he's the British, yeah, he's the British Steven Soderbergh. Mm. Every time he does something, it's different. It's a different genre. I mean, like, you know, he said, like, after this movie was finished, he said he'd never direct a sci-fi movie again because it was that hard. But, like, mm. part of me part of me is, like, totally okay with that. I'm like, yeah. dude, you've proven your point. You can, direct oh, yeah. a, you can direct a sci-fi movie with the best of them. You know, to, like, for, some, for someone to, like, oscillate between, within the space of, like, five years, to oscillate between a, a Bollywood movie to what is essentially, you know, in Some Dog Millionaire, to what is essentially a one-man show in a single cave for 127 hours, to then go and, like, direct this, like, utterly weird and fantastic and strange film, Trance. That was a strange... About, that that about, too about, did about, a lot of yeah, the same about, like, about, genre. Yeah, because it was about it was it was hypnotism. It was a thriller. It was a romance. It was like an erotic thriller. It was a heist film. It was a horror film. Like you know, it was so very very strange. And then he went from that and he directed the Olympics. Yeah. Because why not? And then from that, he went and directed Steve Jobs. And yeah, this is. 
and this is a man who you know was most famous for train spotting. Yeah, and, and now you look at that and, and yeah, and 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 we we see it now. We've we've come full circle. Twenty years later, he's back directing the sequel. It is. Yeah, this and I, and, and he's I, done and consistently I, and I, yeah. good character films. And if there's something, if there's one thing I love about him, like his his filming style is so dynamic. Mm. It's so strange. Like I don't know if I could like look at all his all of his films and say, you know, that's a Frankie. Oh God. Now I'm just getting now 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 I'm just losing <laughs> my mind. Boils. I'm getting my boils mixed up. Uh, listeners, if you are looking for good Scottish comedians, Frankie Boyle is one of the absolute best. He doesn't give a shit. He has a massive beard and glasses, and uh, he makes a lot of jokes that make a lot of people upset. But in any sense, if you ask me to tell you to describe a a Danny Boyle shot. I don't think I could because I don't, yeah. because because I don't think he has one because he's not the guy kind of guy to get weighed down by the uh, by some sort of like intricate cinematic method. Mm. What I think he does is in the same way that he uh, trusts his actors, um, he trusts his entire crew mm. in telling the right story. Yeah. He he motivates everyone to do their absolute best. Um which is why it there's never he doesn't have a, a signature sort of style because he's, he's yeah, able because, to do it yeah, all. Yeah, well 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 his he's style able to slip yeah. into it. And his it's, style it's is so, so it's so refreshing. Inanimous. Yeah, it's is, and it's beautiful because you never you because any movie that you see of his you don't know what you're going to expect. Yeah, you don't know what to you don't know what to, you're going to experience, and so like you know, before Sunshine he did Twenty Eight Days Later, mm-hmm. which they filmed on video. That yeah, that was wild. You know, they filmed that shit on store-bought commercial-grade video. Mm. And it was, I mean, it was the beginning of that kind of, you know, gonzo quick setup shoot method. And the reason, you know, they were able to get shots like an overturned London bus on the middle of the fucking bridge in the Thames was because that entire shot took 20 minutes in terms of, you know, cordoning off traffic, setting up a shot, putting Killian through it, action, cut, bring it up, and then opening traffic again. Yeah, it, it, was the, it, it was the dawn of that new kind of, you know, cinema where, you know, it, I mean, it, even though it wasn't digital, it was the dawn of that, style of shooting style yeah you know the of you know filming something and instantaneously knowing if it's good enough yeah you know you you don't yeah you don't have that trust absolutely you have to send that shit away for you know rushes 
You have to wait 24 or 48 hours for someone to send something back to you and then you know if you actually got anything for the day. Mm. You just know immediately that it was good. Yeah. And this and this movie was good. Mm. Yeah, I. Yeah, we're we're spoiling ourselves a lot by looking at films that I don't think people. Um, I don't. I don't know if many people who who would who have gone out of the way to see Sun Sunshine, they should. Um, it I tackles can... some really interesting sort of thing things if you want it if you want it to it doesn't need to yeah uh, i mean that, I mean, but that, that, that that's a beauty of like you know and it's 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 a, a a level of filming that i feel is like sort of unfortunately getting lost it's that b movie that if you want can satisfy you on a purely visceral visual you know base level but if you want it to, or if you're so inclined, it can offer you something else. Yeah, something so much more. Yeah, and that's and that's what sunshine know, is. It plays on you know the 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 upper class and the lower class sort of thing. So it's yeah, it's a very interesting film. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't fault any of the performances. You can't fault any of the performances. You can't fault the production design at all. There's tricks and camera tricks that they've done, you know, to simulate certain special effects that I couldn't even begin to imagine how they, they would have done. And the simplicity of it is actually one of the reasons that it's so amazing. I mean, we haven't spoken about the score, but it's almost – you know, legend in its own right now. The the score that was, uh, you know, done by Underworld. Yep. Yeah, that's right. He won an award. Well, Underworld was um, uh, the, 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 I mean, the, the music was done by Underworld, which is the uh, collaboration between... Um, Carl Hyde and um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the other guy. It is um, it's something Smith. It's Rick Smith. Yeah, Rick Smith. All right, gotcha. Yeah, Carl Hyde and Rick Smith, who were um, you know legends of the underground uh, uh, sort of house uh, electronica scene back in the nineties. Oh yeah, so, well, they started out as sort of like a sort of funky sort of synth band. They did that song underneath the radar. Oh yeah, yeah, and then afterwards it was just Carl Hart and Rick Smith, and they turned in sort of like almost a electronic DJ duo, and that's when they got on board with uh, Danny Boyle for uh, un uh, so for uh, train spotting. Mm-hmm. So for the song that uh, plays like at the climax of Train Spotting, when you and McGregor's character finally decides he's gonna, you know, make it his own way, that song "Born Slippy" that was their song. Oh, cool! Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what they did was uh, with uh, Sunshine, you know, Danny Boyle brought them on, and uh, Underworld basically improvised an entire score, and they got the orchestrator John Murphy to mm. um, 
you know, uh, orchestrate the entire score into a more kind of epic kind of, you know, notion. Yeah, to give and, more gravitas. And it was this thing, yeah, exactly, that um, for the longest time, no one could listen to the score. It took about a year and a half because uh, Fox Searchlight didn't want to give Underworld any credits. They wanted to dish it all John Murphy's way. Oh, really? Yeah, so then eventually, you know, whatever, it was finally worked out and then now you you hear, um, you know, one of the, the, like the main theme song from Sunshine, you hear it everywhere. They used it in the mm. first. They used it in the first season of Walking Dead. They used it in a in that uh, climactic scene in uh, the first Kickass movie. Yep, with uh, Nick Cage burning alive and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I mean that that like, I mean this music is amazing. John Murphy was do- John Murphy did the was the composer for Kickass as well. So absolutely, yeah, and as he was for Twenty Eight Days Later. Twenty Eight Days, yeah. You know, so. I mean, it's 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 just it's just a great movie. I don't, I don't quite know how else to describe it except to say that. And there we have it. And there, there and, it. And, and and there it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's that's about all you need to know. It's just an amazing movie. But we're not going to. Uh, leave you lacking we've got an absolute cracker lined up next week oh i can't remember what we're doing next week please well, enlighten me well, <laughs> well then i'll i'll tease you as i would as i would tease the audience then oh i'm on so, the other side of it all it's mm, interesting exactly so we we've done a lot of talking over the past you know seven episodes about the nature of a blockbuster the nature of you know what makes a movie great what makes a movie epic the coalescence of characterization versus spectacle and so although you forget we decided to basically go back to the source and analyze one of the greatest cinematic epics of all time Lawrence of Arabia yes that's right we talked that was the we 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 were going we should do a peter o'toole film and we uh it was very easy for us to talk ourselves into it yeah it, it took uh quite honestly about 15 seconds for us to convince each other that uh this needed to be done so um stay tuned ladies and gentry that is going to be next week's film if you feel so inclined you i would absolutely encourage you to uh go ahead and have a crack of this movie you know mm-hmm. put put away an afternoon it is over four, yeah, it, good, it, it, it is over four hours long it's like a sunday afternoon sort of thing so you know cook yourself up a, a decent meal um for the in the during the afternoon for uh, for dinner um take your time and uh and yeah have that playing because it is it's a it's a long film but it's a good film mm. and, and it's, it's, it and is it's, an it's, end it's, of an era yeah and it's satisfying in ways that modern films aren't i suppose in the sense that like their priorities were different yeah the prior the priorities of lawrence of arabia are so much more different to the priorities 
of a modern cinematic blockbuster. And so we're yeah. gonna we're gonna dig right into exactly what made this movie amazing and what m- would make this movie absolutely impossible to make in this day and age. So stay tuned, guys. As always, mm. like, listen, subscribe. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. You can visit our website. They came from, from the, from the silver screen. from from the silver yeah. It is all there. Listen to us. Make comments on our social media. We do listen to them. We do read them. If you have requests for films you'd like to uh, listen to us review, or even uh, cinematic movements, you know. Whatever, whatever takes your fancy, we are game for it, okay? So we are appreciating the uh, interest so far. We are loving the support so far, but we can do more. Brendan Fraser can't stay on top forever. That man has had it for too long. It is time for the dawn of a new age. <laughs> yeah, really, Brendan Fraser is just... He's gone on for long, long enough. I know. Now is I mean, not the, the, the time... For Brendan Fraser, now is the time for the Scoop McNairys of the world. Exactly. If there was a Scoop McNairy podcast, I would listen to that shit every goddamn day. And really, we're the the next best thing to that. So exactly, because well, God bless that man, the avid listener. Oh yes. <laughs> thank you, Scoot. I love and you, thank Scoot. You listeners, I love you so much, Scoot. See you next week. Oh, God, it's good. <laughs>